Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, Ephesians 4, verse 11, and he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what Every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And then we're going to look at chapter 25 in the back of the hymnal, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 25, page 935 of the church. There are six sections here. The Catholic or universal church, which is invisible consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Number two, the visible church, which is also Catholic, which means universal, okay, that's not speaking here, of Roman, the Roman Catholic Church here, that is adjectival, the Catholic or the universal church. The visible church, which is also Catholic or universal, under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, meaning Israel, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. The church is very important here. That's a, that's a line from Augustine, by the way, that they're taking here and putting. There, that Augustine said that there's no ordinary salvation outside the church. Yes, there's a thief on the cross who is saved at the last moment, but ordinarily you, you come to Christ by way of the church, by way of the preaching of the gospel and in the church. Number three, unto, unto this Catholic visible church, Christ hath given the ministry, oracles, and ordinances of God for the gathering and perfecting of the saints in this life to the end of the world and doth by his own presence and spirit, according to his promise, make them effectual thereunto. Number four, this Catholic church hath been sometimes more, sometimes less visible. That is, sometimes you can see the church more clearly, and sometimes it is oppressed and underground. And particular churches, which are members thereof, are more or less pure, according to the doctrine of the gospel, is taught and embraced, Ordinances administered and public worship performed more or less purely in them. 
The purest churches under heaven. Listen now, OPC, only perfect church, okay? Only pure church. I'm kidding. The purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error. And, and some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, there shall be always a church on earth to worship God according to his will. There is no other head, six, there is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ, nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof. So there's a lot there. We won't get to everything, but hopefully we will do a lot. Now, I want to talk about the church from Ephesians. Now, in our text, you see that Jesus Christ is the head. Jesus Christ, in verse 10, he who came down and died on the cross is the one who has ascended far above all the heavens. That means, boys and girls, Jesus Christ has gone into glory to be next to the Father from whence he came uh, before he took on our humanity. Now, what is Jesus doing there? Have you ever thought about that? What does Jesus do all day in heaven? Well, Jesus is building his church. Jesus is still fully God. He's still fully man in one person. And he is building his church all over the world, internationally. And there's nothing that Satan can do to stop it. Now, Satan, prior to the coming of Christ, had all the nations under his deception. Uh, but with the coming of Jesus Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, um, Jesus says that it's like binding the strong man and then plundering his house. Then the strong man is Satan. And that Jesus, having bound up Satan, uh, not in a complete and total sense that you don't have to worry about satanic attacks, there's still satanic attacks, but he's been bound to the extent that he's no longer keeping all the nations of the earth under his deception. Now, he's doing his best to try and thwart the church, to try and hinder it, uh, to, to attack it, both from within and from without. But the gates of hell, that is, the, the gates being the place of, of power and authority, the, the place of power and authority of hell will not prevail. And, and the gates are a defensive weapon. The gates will lose. Um, you know, I think a lot of Christians have it reversed. They think we're behind the gates and hell won't get in, you know. No, it's, we're on the offensive. It's the gates of hell that are on the defensive. Christ is building his church and he's plundering Satan's house internationally. So Jesus is um, the head of the church, as we saw in section six here, that Jesus is the head of the church. The Pope is not the head of the church. The papacy is an invention of the mid-later centuries of church history. The first few centuries, you had, yes, a bishop in Rome, but there was no supremacy to the bishop in Rome. This is Despite what Rome tries to spin here, um, it is not, it, it, you know, the Bishop of Rome had some prominence, but it is not as though all the other bishops in Africa and in Asia and other places looked to the Pope uh, as above their own 
uh, bishopric. And, and so um, it really is a myth that has been conjured by the Roman Catholic Church that, 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 that they always, since the time of the disciples, looked to Peter and his successors. And you don't even see that in Scripture. Um, we, we see that Peter speaks in Acts chapter 15, for example, at the Jerusalem Council. But is Peter the final word at the Jerusalem Council? By no means. Peter actually was one of the early speakers, but you see that there were other speakers after Peter. Um, we find that Peter uh, was going a, a, astray in the book of Galatians from the gospel, and Paul was the one who publicly had to correct Peter. Um, so even, you know, in the days of the apostles, uh, you know, they did not look to Peter. In fact, if you look at who seems to be running the show in Jerusalem, you know, you could say it looked really like James had some of the greatest, um, shall I say, influence. They were, they were, there was parody among them, but that doesn't mean that there's always a parody of influence. And really, it looked for a while like James um, kind of was really, you know, had the greatest influence, the greatest sphere of influence, even though Peter himself was one who ministered among the Jews. So um, despite what the Roman church tries to do, uh, they give it their best effort in throwing their theologians and church historians at us. Um, I, I think the Westminster divines are, are correct uh, that, that Christ did not intend for a single individual man to be the head on, of the church on earth. That's just not what's supposed to be doing. So, and it's not just Protestants who don't recognize it. The Orthodox Church doesn't recognize that. And, and, um, but, you know, Rome claims that the Protestants and the Orthodox are wayward brethren, <laughs> and we should be all in subjection to the Pope. Honestly, just aside, I, I think Roman Catholics today are embarrassed by this present pope, uh, to be quite honest with you. I think a lot of conservative Catholics are just trying to figure out how do we deal with this uh, you know, pope who is saying such careless things that go against the teaching historically of the Roman Catholic Church, even things that pertain to morals. It is Christ who's the head of the church. Christ is the one who came down into this world. It is Christ who died for this church of his. It is Christ who was raised from the dead for his church. It is Christ who has gone into heaven for his church. It is Christ who is on the throne of his church. And it is Christ in our text here who gives the good gifts to his church. If you look at verse 11, it says that Jesus Christ gave some as apostles and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints. That means the whole body of Christ. The New Testament, I read one commentator said that, uh, and I, I haven't double-checked him, but that he said that the word saint is always used in the plural in the Greek in the New Testament. It's never saint so-and-so. When it uses the word saints, it speaks plural in the plural, of the church, that the saints is not a sect of super spiritual people in the church. The saints is the whole of the church. You are in Christ saints. You are holy ones under the Lord. Um, and so God is 
through Christ has given many gifts uh, to the church for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, let's talk a little bit here because in verse 11, notice there that you have some offices that we wouldn't necessarily recognize today as being uh, part of the ordinary uh, offices. We, in the Protestant world, would divide the offices here in verse 11 into what are known as extraordinary offices and ordinary offices. And it's just like it sounds, boys and girls. There are extraordinary offices, means it's extra special, and then there is the ordinary office today. So that's why, for example, notice there in verse 11, he gave some as apostles. Now, if you look, you'll um, note here that apostles, the uh, apostle Paul says elsewhere, are the foundation of the church with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. So the church is the body of Christ. Christ is the head. We are the body. To change the imagery, sometimes they speak of the church as a building, not meaning that this building is the church. I know we speak of this building as the church. Uh, but the church is compared to a building in which Christ is the cornerstone. That was the first and in many ways most important stone of the building because that was on the basis, my understanding is how they engineered in those days. They made sure that the building would be level and, and that that, uh, that cornerstone needed to be perfect. And you would build from that cornerstone. So Christ being perfect is that first stone, and then the apostles are called the foundation, the ground floor of the church. Now, the, the apostles, we believe as Presbyterians, are an extraordinary office. That is, that they were given to the church by Christ, but that there were certain qualifications to be an apostle um, that cannot be fulfilled today. Um, there was, I won't say where or who, but there was a church, is a church here in this community. And on their church sign, it says so-and-so. Uh, it didn't say pastor, uh, but it said apostle <laughs> on, on the sign. And I thought, oh, wow, apostle. Yeah, promoted. <laughs> so what is it that makes an apostle an apostle? Why, why are apostles... Elders, but also more than elders. Now, remember, Peter, when he wrote his uh, uh, first epistle, chapter 5, he says what? I, Peter, your fellow elder. So he viewed himself as an elder in the church, along with the other elders, but he also was not just an elder, but he was an, a, an apostle. Now, the Greek word whereby we translate into English the word apostle means to send. So sometimes, now this is where it gets complicated. Sometimes the word apostle can be used broadly. Sometimes the New Testament speaks about apostle in a broader sense of those who have been sent. But in the sense in which we are speaking about them being the foundation of the church, the scriptures are speaking more narrowly as those who first of all had to be picked by Christ. So for example, if you look at Galatians chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul says, Paul, an apostle, and he says parenthetically, not sent from men, 
nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him up from the dead. Meaning he, Paul, was called specifically, audibly, by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he tells us he was like a child who was late in coming, untimely born, meaning that he was a child who, after mom and dad thought they had all the children they would ever have, and lo and behold, here comes Paul. He didn't walk with Jesus for three years like the other apostles. And so he was kind of the surprise apostle uh, that got added to the church. But nevertheless, Jesus Christ called him uh, audibly. The Bible tells us that those who were with Paul heard the voice, though they did not see uh, everything that Paul uh, saw. And it was Paul alone who was blinded, you'll remember. The others had to lead Paul by the hand. So the calling was particular to Paul, even though he was in a group of men. And Saul, Saul, you know, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, and I'm calling you. Uh, if you look at the book of Romans in the beginning, verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul says he was a bond servant of Christ Jesus. He was a slave. Uh, that's a, basically what a bond servant was. Paul was a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. That is, he had a, he had a direct call from Jesus Christ in a way that was extraordinary. Now, pastors and others will speak of being called by the Lord, but listen, I didn't get any audible call to be here as a pastor. There was no voice from heaven. There was no writing in the sky for me. That is reserved for the apostle. Okay, the apostles were called. They were chosen by Jesus. Jesus said, Levi, Come out of that tax collector's booth and follow me. Uh, you, you know, James and John, you, Peter and Andrew, you guys, drop your nets and follow after me. They got specific calls from Jesus Christ to follow him in a way that other men were not called. They were personally picked by the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the first qualification. The second qualification is, not only did they have to be personally picked by Jesus, they had to have seen Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Now, for most of us, Jesus Christ uh, has been in glory when we became Christians. So we have only known Christ uh, as he revealed himself to us through the word. But the apostles saw the Lord Jesus Christ risen from the dead. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 1, the apostle Paul says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? He Remember, he had to defend his apostleship. There were others who were claiming to be apostles in his day, and, and Paul is saying, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord, Notice the qualification there. To be an apostle, you had to have seen Jesus risen from the dead. Are you not my work in the Lord? Uh, if to others I am not an apostle, at least to you I am. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So they had to, secondly, have seen Jesus Christ. Number three, they received knowledge of the gospel by immediate revelation, says Charles Hodge in his Systematic Theology. Charles Hodge 
says that the apostle received knowledge of the gospel by immediate. Now, what is immediate revelation? Meaning it wasn't mediated through another man. They received direct divine revelation by the Spirit of God from Jesus Christ. Remember, when Paul is converted, what does he do? He goes to Arabia. He tells us, I did not consult with men, Paul says. Later, he does go to Jerusalem in order to present to the apostles that are there the teaching that he had received to make sure that they were not running in vain, that they were on the same page, so to speak. They were preaching the same gospel message. You see that in Acts 15 as well. Peter is there. They, they have this dispute with the Judaizers, and they want to make sure, are we on the same page with regard to the gospel as it relates to Gentiles? And so there he does, again, meet with apostles. But he did not do so in order to receive revelation through them. He was receiving direct revelation from the Lord, just as they had in their time with the Lord. So you had to be picked by Jesus, you had to have seen the risen Jesus Christ, and you had to receive knowledge of the gospel directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Ephesians chapter 3 uh, and verse 2, Ephesians 3. If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. Look at verse 3. That by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. He Notice the Apostle Paul is saying what? I got direct divine revelation. Now listen. Our friend in town <laughs> did not get that. Okay? He may think at times he has gotten it. But if he has really gotten it, he better be writing some new chapters and books in the Bible and giving it to the rest of the church. Because that is what the apostles did. Inspired by the Spirit of God, they wrote down these things uh, and they are in, in Scripture. Number four, the apostles were rendered infallible in their teaching by the gift of inspiration. They were rendered infallible. They wrote and taught inherently infallibly when they wrote and taught. Um, that's not to say everything they uttered was always right That in other matters, necessarily, okay? It's, it is possible for the Apostle Paul to get directions wrong, let's say, and, you know, take a wrong path or somewhere. But in terms of, in speaking of the Bible, in the teaching of the Word of God, that that which they taught was always inerrant and infallible. Um, we see this, you know, again, you know, with, with Peter. Peter got some things wrong, you know. Lord forbid, you know, that you should go to the cross. Get behind me, Satan, you know. Um, and again, the Galatian controversy. Peter was on the wrong side of that and had to be corrected. So it didn't mean all, you know, in everything uh, in their life was perfect. But that which we have always is inerrant and infallible. And then uh, number five, they performed miracles, including raising people from the dead. They, they were able to perform miracles uh, that showed themselves to be in the line of the prophets and of Jesus himself. So Peter, for example, raises Dorcas, whose name is also Tabitha, 
from the dead. Paul brings a young man who fell out the window back to life. Uh, we have these examples of them. So they were personally picked by Jesus. They had seen the risen Jesus Christ. They received the knowledge of the gospel by immediate revelation. They taught infallibly and inerrantly uh, in their teaching by the gift of the Holy Spirit. And they were able to perform miracles, extraordinary miracles. Now, notice here, it says he gave, in verse 11, he gave some as apostles and some as prophets. Now, the prophets, again, we would understand to be an extraordinary office. An office, that is the extraordinary offices were there in the early days of the church when the canon of Scripture had not been completed. What do you do if you don't have a Bible yet in the New Testament? What are you, what are you going to read in church? You know, in, in Corinth, what are you going to do? Uh, and, you know, the, on, on the Lord's Day, well, God had given some to be prophets. That is, they would, under the inspiration of the Spirit, they would speak the inspired word of God. Now, prophet did not mean merely telling the future. That's how people tend to think of the word prophet, somebody who can tell the future. Now, you do have some, like Agabus in the book of Acts, who did prophesy? The man whose belt this is is going to be bound and sent away uh, and going to be arrested in Jerusalem. But ordinarily, it was to bring the word of God before the canon was completed. Now, this office was especially necessary because everything in the New Testament hadn't yet been written. Um, now, Going on from there, notice it says some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists. Now, what are the evangelists? Evangelists, now this is where we're getting into ordinary offices. They're the, the first two, the apostle and the prophet, we would understand to be extraordinary offices that, have, that were particular to that generation but have since ceased, okay? With the death of the apostles, there are no apostles who succeed them. Okay, they don't even meet the qualifications. We would say the same for the prophets, that the prophets ceased with the closing of the canon. You know, there's even evidence that some of these extraordinary works of God through the apostles were waning in their day. You know, for example, you've, you've got the apostle Paul who has to leave a man sick in Miletus. Well, Paul, what are you doing? I mean, dude, you only have to you know, give him a handkerchief of yours and he gets healed. Well, it seems to indicate, actually, that the Spirit was beginning to withdraw the extraordinary. And now the church is relying increasingly upon the ordinary, even while the Apostle Paul is still living. So, um, all that to say, how much more after the apostles and the prophets have died? Now, the evangelists, who are the evangelists? Evangelists, and we have the office of evangelists in the OPC, uh, just so you know. Now, they are a form of a teaching elder or a minister of the gospel, but evangelists are those who bring the gospel uh, to generally to new areas or to people who are not yet Christians. So, for example, uh, we may get a phone call, like a Macedonian phone call, <laughs> and... Uh, and they say, hey, um, we have four families here, and 
you know, we have been studying together as a family about the Westminster Confession of Faith, but, you know, we really would like some help. There's nobody here to teach us these things, and we're doing the best we can on our own, and can you come and help us? And, and so the OPC says, okay, we will send an evangelist to your area. Uh, we have what we call regional home missionary, uh, who is Lacey Andrews in our presbytery. And his job, he, boys and girls, does not have a particular church uh, that he pastors every Sunday. He's not like me and shows up at the same building every Sunday. What he does is he travels and he speaks in different places where there is no church particular yet. And he uh, helps those churches to get off the ground and he leads them as an evangelist to the point where they are ready to call a pastor. We'll talk about the pastor in a moment. Um, and, and then, you know, once that has been successfully accomplished and they're of mission work and they've got a pastor, then uh, he may stay on the governing board of the elders for a while, but then he's moving on. His job is to keep on trucking, as they say. Keep on traveling throughout the southeast. Um, you'll remember, those of you who uh, may remember the old days when this church was in a different presbytery, Jim, Jim Heemstra, uh, who was a former plumber. He was a plumber. He had his own plumbing business, and he was a ruling elder, first with uh, some guy you might have heard of called D. James Kennedy uh, down in South Florida. And, uh, but later, he moved to Tallahassee, and he was uh, then moved from the PCA into the OPC, I'm looking at our Tallahassee friends here. And, uh, and Jim Heemstra, uh, the Dutch uncle, as he was sometimes called, um, he, he became a regional home missionary. He retired from plumbing, sold his business, sold their home, and bought an RV. They were, they were empty nesters at this point, yes. And he and his wife, Sandy, uh, got in the RV and started traveling throughout the South. And they would... And they, one of the places they brought their RV was right here in LaGrange, Georgia. And they were over at Highland Marina in the, in the camp section. They, put, they parked their RV over there, hooked it up, and they live, I think it was, I want to say 13 months here at Highland Marina to help get families off the ground. We had a couple families who couldn't do first pres anymore, and a couple families who tried, you know, I won't name the names, but they tried some other churches. They had reformed backgrounds, and they're like, this, we need help. And so uh, we had Bob, um, Carolyn Dodds' husband, Bob Dodds. He was a bivocational PCA minister helping them, and um, the PCA, for whatever reasons, couldn't seem to help us. Bob said, look, I know some people in the OPC up in Atlanta, and we, they get in touch with the OPC, and the OPC calls Jim Heemstra, and Jim and Sandy show up in their RV. That's how, how this church got started. Um, and he served in the office of evangelist. He was an evangelist for our presbytery, and so once uh, he ministered here for 13 months, I think they built it up to about 40 people, and they called, uh, they were able to call a minister, Tim Power, who we prayed for, uh, Tim went on to be a chaplain later in the Navy, but he, um, he took over as pastor here and did that for four years, and then some kid out of Atlanta showed up. And <laughs> it's been here for 30. So, um, so you know, but uh, 
but we owe Jim a huge debt, he and Sandy both. Um, and um, anyway, they did that in many different states. I think they did it in, in Texas, Florida, Georgia, did it twice in Georgia, at least twice in Georgia, um, and, and other places, Virginia, Tennessee. Um, there are a lot of different churches that um, are in existence today because of Jim Heemstra serving as an evangelist. So, uh, and, and uh, by the way, just as an aside, an application, you know, that also shows, you know, you guys who are on the verge of retirement, uh, you know, that <laughs> shows what God can do through a retired man, okay? Um, so just keep that in mind, you know, there might be a second career out there in your future, all right, um, after you get done engineering. <laughs> so uh, that's the, the evangelist. Then notice here in verse 11, after the evangelist, some are called as pastors. Now, boys and girls, what's the difference? Um, the evangelist travels. He goes to places where there's no church, no reformed church, and he starts them up. Um, he helps people who you know, want a church in their hometown to get one going. Once he's done his work, then the pastor comes. They call a pastor. The pastor moves to the community, and he becomes a part of the community. He is called to minister to established congregations, established churches. Um, the pastor's job is to, as Paul says here in this chapter, is to equip the saints. So his job is equipping the saints. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that the minister, the pastor, is to provide the ongoing oversight through preaching, teaching, catechizing, visiting, administering the sacraments, counseling, pastoral care among those who are sick and afflicted and enduring trials, and then also exercising discipline along with the elders of that congregation. So the pastor's job is to build up the people of God in a particular church, in a particular community. Then notice here it says teachers. Who are the teachers? What do the teachers do? The teacher, uh, like the pastor is, and the evangelist, is ordinarily an ordained minister. The teacher is an ordained uh, minister of the gospel. However, they help a church. They may help a particular church. But their general day-in, day-out vocation is not with that, that particular church. Their vocation primarily is in the academy. And so they may, for example, let's take Dr. William Wood. He's preached here. You have gotten to know Dr. Wood. Dr. Wood is an ordained minister of the gospel, but he is not called to be a pastor. He, he helps the church, Christ Church, in the evenings. He does the preaching and teaching on Sunday night at Christ Church, which is good because the, the minister of that church is also the clerk of our presbytery, and that is an incredible amount of work which I'd never want that job. <laughs> I will pay serious money not to have that job. Um, we should pay the clerk a lot more than we do. But Dr. Wood's job, in addition, he helps out on Sunday night at Christ Church. But his main business through the rest of the week is teaching theological students um, at Reformed Theological Seminary. His job is to help young men learn how to teach and preach from the Old Testament primarily. That's his, that's his specialty. Um, and so he is equipping men 
uh, to become future evangelists, pastors, and teachers as well. Some of the men he teaches will become pastors. Some of those men that he's teaching are going to become teachers. Okay, Not everybody in seminary becomes a minister. You need to realize some do go on then to get their PhD. They get their Master of Divinity, which is kind of your your working pastor's degree, okay? It used to actually be called the Bachelor of Divinity, but, you know, you got diploma inflation these days. It's a Master's of Divinity, which, I, you know, it's fine. It's three years, sometimes four. If you go to Greenville Seminary, it's four years, okay? Um, I went to RTS. <laughs> and so um, that just means we're smarter. We get it done quicker, more efficiently. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> so anyway, um, the, they, uh, there are some men who will go to seminary, they get their divinity degree, but then they go on to further, usually to another school where they get their PhD or their THD. And that, that enables them to become a doctor of theology um, and they will serve in the academy as well. Sometimes it might be a, a university. Sometimes it might be a college. Um, we have some that are employed by Covenant College. Um, we have some that are employed by Westminster Seminary, Reform Seminary, some in our presbytery, Greenville Seminary. Uh, we have a number of teachers. They, they don't have particular churches that they are in charge of, okay? Now, they are part of that church, and they serve in those churches, sometimes in a teaching and preaching capacity. But they are um, vocationally, they are there to equip the saints in different ways, okay? Um, so that, is, that covers evangelists, pastors, uh, teachers. Um, let me make a few applications from this. Um, first of all, there is always a need for more workers of one type or another. So we know Jesus has told us we need to pray for more workers. That also means that we should encourage uh, young men in particular to think about the ministry. Even if it's not the pastor, it could be serving the Lord in an academic sense as a teacher or serving as an evangelist. Um, where, where you would travel. Uh, we need, Jesus says, we need more workers. And so we, first application is we need to pray for more workers and we need to encourage young people. Now, if you are a young man, let me tell you that we have in the OPC a particular uh, program called the Timothy Conference. And this is to help um, young men to think about the ministry, to discern, you know, is this something that God might call me to? Um, it's, it is not there to, you know, strong arm anybody into it. Um, you know, we have a healthy fear of not wanting to go into an office that the Lord has not called us to. However, and there are different takes on this. You know, you have Spurgeon's take on it was, you know, don't go where God is not called. If you can do any other vocation, do it, okay? That's kind of Spurgeon's take on it. That is not universally held in the Reformed world. Others like Robert Dabney had a view that you look at your own gifts, you look at your abilities, you look at the needs, and, and you know, to see, is there a match? Could you um, 
you know, and, and so Dabney maybe even wrote his article. You know, I've had a theory that I don't know who wrote the article first, but I have a feeling Spurgeon did his first and Dabney kind of was replying. They were contemporaries. Uh, they lived on different sides of the Atlantic. But I've sometimes wondered if Dabney didn't write his article somewhat because he didn't like Spurgeon's answer to the call to the ministry. You know, Spurgeon wrote um, a book for young men, you know, who were considering the ministry. And it's possible, I don't know, again, this is just Boyd Miller's personal theory, that, that Dabney didn't like some aspects of that, particularly within regard to the call. And Dabney said, look, do you, are, do you have sufficient gifts and graces as a Christian uh, to teach? Um, why would you not consider the ministry? Yes, you might be able to do other things, but given the needs of the world and the needs of the church, you know, why would you not you know, give serious consideration to the ministry? So I, there are different views out there on that. And um, I'm somewhere in the middle between those two. I think when I was coming up through the ranks, I kind of, I had heard the Spurgeon view and that was kind of something my mentor held to as well. The problem with that is then I end up getting called outwardly by a church where I haven't even begun the process because I was so afraid that I would be taking something up that God had not called me to, and I lacked in a strong inward sense of calling. Um, I tend to be you know, somewhat cautious, and I don't want to you know, be heading into something that I wasn't certain that the Lord wanted me in. And, and so you know, I ended up, you know, being called by this church to be the pastor, and I, you know, you get to Presbyterian, and they realize, you're not even under care yet? <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> it's because under care, it said at the time that you needed to be able to demonstrate a, a sense of an inward call, and that's, that was my problem. Um, I didn't go to seminary to become a minister. I went to become a better Christian. That was why, I, that was what motivated me. I wasn't certain I was supposed to be a pastor, um, and so that there is that danger, okay? And, and so I don't want to, you know, lead men to discouragement from considering that office simply because you could envision yourself doing something else. Um, I mean, I could envision myself doing other things, to be honest, sometimes. And there's probably no minister that doesn't fantasize at times about doing other things. <laughs> but in all honesty, um, but... You know, I, I think you, you, you do, I can understand Spurgeon's point, though, too. And, and, and that is, there does need to be, I think there are going to be days that are going to be very difficult as a pastor. And I think you do need to have a sense in the ministry, woe unto me if I don't preach the gospel. Given what God has demonstrated to me and, and, and uh, my own sense of graces and gifts that, you know, there is this healthy fear of the Lord that, you know, if I do quit, you know, uh, you know, a huge whale is going to come out of Lake West Point and grab me in my canoe and, you know, and I will repent very quickly. Um, but I think we, we do, we, we want to be sober about the ministry, but we don't want to discourage young men uh, from seeking it or considering it. And, and I don't think there's any shame in considering it and saying, you know, in the end, I don't think it's for me. I don't think there's any shame in going to seminary and realizing, you know, I don't think this is for me. Listen, we need ruling elders who have been to seminary 
who have that background. I mean, that's a huge help. Uh, we need people who, you know, have been to seminary. You know, I think even women um, should be, you know, if you want to go to seminary as a woman, I think you should go. Now, do I think you should be an ordained minister? No, I don't. But I, I think, you know, every, I think there are lots of motivated laymen who should be getting theologically, theological level, seminary level education. Um, I don't think that's wrong. Um, and, uh, you know, if you, you feel that sense, you know, I don't know what God's going to call me to do, but for whatever reason, I think I should go to seminary, you know. Um, it's a good place to find a husband, women, too, by the way, single single women. <laughs> they don't last long in seminary. <laughs> Not that you're your primary motivation, but just saying. Um, the other thing that we see here about the church, and I'm, I'm out of time, um, all of these gifts and, and offices that the Lord gives, they are for building up the church. They're not for ourselves. They're not for the building up of ourselves. They're for the building up of the body of Christ. Um, they are to do ministry among the people of God and in the community. You think of it in terms of like Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, the governor who comes out of the exile and he obviously is a talented man, gifted man, but what was his purpose? His purpose was to help the people, equip the people for the rebuilding of the wall. Yeah, he was the one that had to encourage them and motivate them along with Ezra, uh, but, um, but his purpose was to get everyone to help in this project. And in the same way, what, is, what are we doing? We are building, we are not constructing a, a wall made with, human hands, but we are constructing the, the church of Christ worldwide, internationally. And, and the, the job of the officers here in the church is to be the building up of the people of God. Um, we should be equipping the people of God to grow in grace, but also we need to be growing numerically. We, we are to see ordinarily a growth in the church. Excuse me. If you, as by way of application, are in need of or in search of ministry, um, please, you know, talk to me or the elders. Or um, there, there are lots of opportunities. We we have uh, people who are often shut in. Uh, we have a nursing home outreach. We have a college ministry. We have children that need catechizing. We have visitors who need to be called. Uh, after they have visited the church. We have hospitality needs. Uh, we need to outreach to children who don't have Christian parents. Um, you know, that was, a, you, did you know that was the original purpose of Sunday school? Was, was, it was not meant to give covenant children an opportunity to get a Christian education. It was primarily intended to reach children from non-Christian homes and, to, and expose them to the gospel. Um, evangelicals, I think, have forgotten the history of, of that. Um, deacons need help and assistance. There's always tech, uh, the technological uh, media that is always needing to be done. Maintenance and building. So there, there are all kinds of opportunities and ministry uh, that you can plug into um, as well. I'm going to close here. I had more pages and more notes. I don't know what I'll do next Sunday.
Uh, but let's stop for now here and let's